In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. topic of today's reading seems very much to be water. Water and life, the necessity of water to life, and the element of faith that comes in when you decide to take the water of life or the water that brings us life. We've been through uh, three weeks of Lent now and we've given up many things in our program of self-denial and I trust that we haven't suffered any deleterious effects physically. Uh, one thing I've never asked anyone to give up or give up myself is water. It might be interesting to simply take water out of our diet for 50 days and see what happens. But I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> we'll get to meet Jesus a little sooner maybe than we might have planned. <laughs> Water's necessary to life. Um, we're made mainly of water, and we're supposed to drink, I don't know how many liters of it a day, and I know that I feel better if I do, if I can make myself drink it. I find pure water a little bit boring, but it is only pure water that can really do for the chemical uh, system of the body what it's supposed to do. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about water. Um, we get all of our water from the ocean. It all starts there, it all ends up there. We don't drink ocean water, generally, unless we do some pretty intensive purification of our own. The water that we drink, we get on Earth. But all of that water comes from the ocean. It evaporates up, it forms into the clouds, the clouds transport the water across the Earth, the water comes down again as precipitation. It falls on the ground. The force of gravity takes it back to the oceans again. But on its way, it gets caught up in the ground in different ways. It sometimes sinks deep within the ground. It stays there for a long time. Sometimes not so deep. Sometimes it sits on the surface. We found two references today to how we access groundwater. The uh, Israelites in the desert uh, have Moses strike a rock, and the rock opens, and we suddenly have a spring. The water from deep in the ground shoots up. Maybe it's under pressure. It finds an escape, and they have this very pure water, which has sat undisturbed for who knows how long. On the other hand, Jesus meets a woman at the well, and we know that the well in question, if it is the well, that they're talking about is 100 feet deep, and it had to have been dug that deep to get to a place where, again, that water that falls, that rain collects, and where there's enough of it to actually uh, sustain a community of any size for any length of time. Water has a way, then, of gathering communities around it. And the ownership of water uh, becomes a very contested uh, matter. Even with the hospitality of the ancient Near East, wells are, are, are like gold. If you have a well on your property, it's yours. It belongs to you, maybe it belongs to the community. So what we find in the Bible again and again is that wells are places of encounter. 
they draw people together, but the encounter is often charged with tension of different kinds. The first encounter that we notice uh, in the Bible is that between supernatural and natural beings, in other words, between humans and God, or at least God's supernatural emissaries. We find in Genesis 16 when Hagar is on the run. She flees into the wilderness to a well, and she there encounters the living one who sees me, a merciful, comforting God, who in every sense takes this young woman who has suffered so much, encourages her, refreshes her, pulls her back from the brink of despair, gives her her life back, if you like. Some of these encounters are also encounters between cultures, between rival clans. Moses, fleeing for his life from Egypt, comes into the land of Midian to a well, and he rescues seven sisters who are at the well. It's their well, and they're being harassed by a bunch of shepherds who want the water for their sheep. Now, sheep or camels can put a real big dent in the deepest well, so Moses earns one of the sisters as his wife by chasing those shepherds away. That brings us to another common type of encounters at wells, and that is between a man and a woman, often alone, with the implicit potential that the sexual tension or the gender difference between them will result in a betrothal of some kind. That just as God brings all of the water we have on earth from heaven, where it's been purified by rising from the sea. So he brings the sense of the purity of this water to uh, purify, if you like, all the different things that are bringing a man and a woman together. So Isaac vicariously is brought to meet Rebekah in Genesis 24, Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 29. It goes on through the text to this encounter in the New Testament, John 4, which some sense brings all of the three, God and humanity, different types of humanity, Israelites and Samaritans, and a man and a woman together. The encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, of course, is not destined for matrimony, although matrimony provides the subtext for what Jesus and the woman have to say. But it is interesting that from the friendship that Jesus and this woman form comes a kind of a healing, not just between Samaritans and Israelites, but between God and human beings. We'll get to that. First of all, we cannot overstate the degree of ill will and distrust that separates uh, Judeans now, rather, for Israelites and Samaritans or Samarians. Their descendants, the Samaritans of Joseph, by way of Ephraim and Manasseh, those two tribes settled there, and of those who settled around them. There was an enmity from the beginning, especially when the political structure of Israel began to fall apart, and the distrust was only intensified, intensified by the different experiences that Samaritans and Israelites had as time went on, not least the non-participation of the Samaritans in the Babylonian captivity and the intensification of this kind of outmarriage, which seems to be the pattern there, this degradation of the pure Israel stock by marrying outside. They 
didn't have much trouble degrading it themselves, but when they sought help from outside, it becomes a very uh, toxic kind of a brew. They lack the common experience, in other words, that would draw them together. Now, when we get to this woman's place within her community, uh, there again, there is a degree of tension. And the separation between her and Jesus should become even more attenuated. At this period of time, of course, we would hope we're done with that, but at this period of time, a woman only found her identity through a man, through her father, maybe, maybe through a husband. As she changed status, say, never married or became a widow, her identity became more fragile, more susceptible to uh, being preyed upon in different ways by men, if you like. We don't know what the story of this woman is. We don't know if she was ever married. Uh, we know that she has had a serial cohabitation, if you like, which is not something that is encouraged in Judea or in Samarita, Samaria. And for her now to be in the open air at noon speaking to a Judean male might look just like more of the same. She comes out there alone avoiding the time of day when the other women would come and, and the, the, the period of gathering at the well to draw water, which is the women's work, is uh, a time in which social bonds are re-energized. Well, she is an outsider, an outsider among outsiders. And Jesus, who also happens to be the son of the living God as well, comes to this woman and initiates a conversation. What he finds as the conversation unfolds is an openness, a trust. Maybe she has nothing to lose, but his vulnerability, his willingness to take the risk of being seen with her and saying, I don't care what people say, I know what's in my heart, is rewarded with her response. And she shares this interesting uh, perspective she has on the faith that Messiah is coming, something which everybody uh, shares at that time. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And the story, even on our rather chopped up version, unfolds. She goes back to her village and shares with them that she has met a man who knows everything about her life without her telling him. And on the strength of this woman's testimony, very interesting that they somehow put trust in her testimony, but they do, the entire village is saved, if you like. They come back to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is this source of living water, if you like, this water from above, which is deposited in the earth and kept as a pure source of life. And they partake of this salvation due to this woman's testimony. Jesus moves from that very fragile, liminal encounter with no possibility from a good outcome, and you get this pretty violent reaction from the disciples, again in the text that we didn't hear, of let's get out of here, let's make yourself scarce, we're, we're in trouble here. From this risky encounter, 
Jesus' revelation of himself, his mission, of who he is, goes into the very hearth and home of this woman and of this whole community. He does this, and this is so typical of Jesus, and yet it provides the beauty, the sweetness of this story, the capacity of this account to just touch something so deeply in our souls. He does this by engaging this woman in trust, in tenderness, in absolute intimacy while observing the proper boundaries that separate them, but throwing out the cultural boundaries that separate them, treating her as his equal, opening up a proverbial safe space in which real intimacy, such as we await in the new creation, replaces the battleground on which today's sexual tensions are discharged. In doing so, he restores at least temporarily all those relations between sexes, between cultures, and between man and God, which had become dysfunctional in the fall. Now, the key to achieving that, it seems, as it was also in the moment of time earlier in the desert of Sinai, when the people of Israel were losing their faith that they would be rescued. Uh, I'll open up a little bit about them. Yeah, they're on a fast from water and they don't want it. And they don't know how much further this fast is going to go. And they come to a place where they do not believe that God is with them. He's not among them. And because they don't believe that God is with them, they also believe that he is not for them. Two different questions. But here, the people who are moving to the promised land in faith, that it will be opened to them by the God who has led them out of captivity and is leading them to this great reward, do so because they absolutely trust that he is the God who is for them, whether or not he is with them. Now, he is seeming to be neither. And you're in a very difficult place if you feel either that God is with you but not for you, or absent from you and for you. Either way, it doesn't help. And as the whole issue unfolds, they're led to suspect that God very well may be with them and against them. And this is when they turn on Moses and say, we don't trust this God, we don't trust any of this. This is all a trap. We should never have left Egypt. What are you doing? So if this was supposed to be a hydrological expedition, it turns out to be a test of faith which the congregation of the people fail. They find their water in the end, but they also find that they have lost something much greater. They've gone from faith to fear, and there they have stayed. Their hearts become hardened in that fear. God is not there. And if he's there, he is not for us. Exactly where we in this modern secular world live our lives. This is the world in which we live too. A world in fact in which a God who is not with you is not for you. And maybe that's just as well. Maybe that's the ideal situation if you like. Because who wants to be with a God who is against you? I tease this out 
because these folks are doing this for the first time. And they're learning to learn about God by trial and error. They're learning to trust God, and they're learning what Paul has to tell us in Romans, that God is for them by trial and error. And it takes a lot of suffering on their part. What does Paul say? Since we have been justified by faith, by our trust in God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, the forgiveness which the gospel brings, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How so? How do we rejoice? How much suffering do we have to go through before we too lose our faith that God is with us and God is for us? It's not just a rhetorical question. And sometimes the answer to that is not much, maybe 1% of our standard of living. But Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we're going to get out of this place someday and it's all going to be forgotten? No. It's all happened in the past, he says. Our peace with God was made not by us, not by how we lived, not by us figuring it out, getting it right. It all happened before we were even born. For while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, God's love established a bond between him and us which nothing will break and only our ascent is needed to cement forever. While we were far from him and drifting further away, he was coming after us, not in wrath, as Paul says, but in reconciliation. God has condescended, has lowered himself to us to suffer with us, to die for us and with us so that we might become his righteousness. Now, no other religion has ever figured this out. We've seen big religions with a big God who is a prisoner of his own majesty or a God who promises only nothingness to human beings. But only the witness of God in Christ, the God who went to that well, opened his heart and that woman's in an act of sheer grace can show us the heart of the God who made this world and is drawing us through it to something even greater, this world made beautiful and perfect in him. If Jesus' job had just been to lay down the law for that woman, set her straight and get out of town, he could have done it in an hour. That was not his job. His job was to share with those people and her God's love for sinners. God in Christ shows the graciousness of his heart towards us then. Most graciously in, in these interactions between Jesus and those who are outside. The Pharisees, the brightest and the best, the moral saints, he has no use for. They've received their reward already, he says, 
And God help us if we ever hear God say that to us. God goes outside the gates, outside the camp, to the sinners, to the sick, to the maimed, the disfigured, the disabled, those whom this world has sucked in, chewed up, and spat out. In these liminal places, then, these ambiguous places, fraught with the possibility of real communication, Jesus models his love, and no time more than when he is dealing with women, lifting them, healing them, making them whole, drawing them to himself, and returning them strengthened, yes, to find their way back through a man's world again, but knowing what a man's world could be and should be by knowing this man among men. So let us seek to receive this beautiful story like a wildflower, an inexhaustible source of God's grace. Let us reflect on the simple symbols as we go forward of this water, this pure water that started in the sky, dropped to the earth, was filtered there, and as it washed its way back to the sea, gave us life. And let us give thanks to a God who, like that pure rain, was not content to make thunder clouds in the sky, fill the air with his thunder and his lightning, his wrath and his anger. But like the gentle rain that falls on sinner and saint alike, gave the blessing of his nurturing love to us. Amen.